Good morning, Steve Dale's Pet World on WGN. And my guest is one of my favorite people. He really is my favorite when we disagree, which we will a bit, about this topic. I just want all of you to remember this. I'm right. He probably isn't. His name is Mark Cushing. He's an attorney that is the most impactful attorney in the pet world. His book is called Pet Nation. It's a fascinating read. It truly is. The inside story of how companion animals are transforming our homes, culture, and economy. Good morning, Mark. Steve, how are you? What's the weather in Chicago? Cold. Colder than where you're at. I think anywhere is colder than where you're at in Arizona. But I want to talk about one of the premises of your book, that we have a shortage of pets. And here's how I put it, and then then I'll let you go. I think we do. We're moving to the point of having a shortage of some types of dogs in particular that can be harder to come by if you don't want to wait, which I understand. However, to say there's a shortage of all dogs, if I were to say that right now, I would be appropriately kicked at and screamed at by anyone who works at a shelter who sees still, even in major metro areas, that are doing far better, including Chicago, than the rest of the country. So go ahead and respond and do your thing. All right, Steve. And provocative topic, important, and a fluid topic uh, because things change one direction during covid And now with the limited access to veterinary care, they head in a different direction. So what do I mean by that? What we found, uh, Steve, in in, in, uh, national studies that were done, including by Mississippi State University's vet school back in 2015, which seems like, you know, 30 years ago, but just seven (laughs) years ago, that we, we had, with exceptions always, one can't generalize about every shelter in America, but... We, were, we had headed into a, a, an environment where major northern urban shelters um, by midday Friday, certainly by Saturday morning, typically were out of adoptable dogs, dogs that behaviorally and medically were in good shape to be adopted. And many of these were being supplied, as you know, by, uh, by shelters and rescue groups across the south and southwest, lower Midwest, and so forth. Okay. Exceptions, yes, but, but that became generally the case. And so adoption prices began to, do, began to increase. That's understandable with supplies constricted. Um, and then COVID accelerated that. And we saw those, you know, TV shots of Florida, big urban shelters with every kennel door open because they didn't have any dogs. And so you also had the millennial uh, cohort becoming the largest pet-owning cohort in the country over the same time period as millennials began to take over the world. (laughs) Their love for dogs and cats was, you know, unmatched. And they were not as friendly to the adopt-don't-shop moral ethic, that you had a duty to go to a shelter. Many of them wanted a particular breed. And whatever the reasons were, you know, they did their research. They wanted to show off to their neighbors. They had a lot of money. I don't know what their reasons were, but the point was, so we began to, to look at, um, is that sustainable because of, of the overarching issues about puppy mills? Now, 
now we find shelters not back at their 2019 level, but there is an uptick, no question, Steve, in most shelters in, in their dog population due to not so much inflation. I can't afford a dog, but I can't get vet care. Well, uh, that, well, let, let's look at the data. So uh, that is certainly part of the issue I can't get or I can't afford vet care. You know, people that work in an animal shelter are, are I think, as good as economists at saying something's about to happen. And anytime something happens with the economy, they know it early on. The big issue now, according to the shelter I, to people I talk to all across the country, uh, is housing. And because of difficulty getting housing for a whole variety of reasons, including affordability, people are giving up their animals. The other thing is that they're giving up their animals for the same reasons they always have. Behavior issues, I'm moving, etc., etc. Behavior issues being among those, if not at the top of the list. The other thing that's gone on is that, as you allude to, everyone who wanted a dog, it seems, got a dog because the shelters were saying, help, I don't know what is going to happen here. We don't know if we're going to be able to come into work to feed the animals or scoop the litter boxes for cats or walk dogs. So please come in and adopt the dogs. And people did, not only all over the country, but all over the Western world, which was magnificent. But then they got a dog, maybe two, maybe a couple of cats. And now they they just don't have ability, if or interest to to adopt an animal. And that's gone on as well. Here's something I want to get to, because we only have a couple minutes left in this segment, and then I want to talk to you about telehealth. So here's a place where I think we disagree. I'm a huge, huge supporter, as you know, of preventing pet stores from selling dogs and cats. I mean, they are not from responsible breeders ever, ever, ever. So if they're not from responsible people, that leaves me to think they're from irresponsible people and or people we have no idea who they are. It's a lot to comment on, and what we have now is about two and a half minutes there. We need, dogs aren't created in laboratories. They need to, be, they need to breed, whether it's random, intentional, family, local, hobby, or commercial. And where you and I disagree um, is not on getting rid of puppy mills and disincentivizing puppy mills and doing all the things one can do in the marketplace and in some cases politically. Okay, I understand that. Where we disagree is in a narrow, on a narrow point. There is a magnificent, comprehensive, more rigorous than anything any animal welfare groups produced um, set of standards took me an hour and a half to read it, A to Z, and I'm a speed reader. That's mm-hmm. what law school does for you. <laughs> okay. On, on, humane, on humane breeding and every facet of humane breeding, environmental, medical, safety, behavioral, you name it. And that's produced by Dr. Candace Crony and now owned by Purdue University, which is one of the world's greatest veterinary colleges. And they have an independent, completely independent auditing group, Validus, that they work with that has no interest, and they make a living by being completely honest, just going in and checking off whether a person complies or not. And 120 breeders now have gone through that program, and they make a living breeding, so they're commercial breeders. And that program, if you have that seal, canine care certified, you are not a puppy mill, period. 
All right. My well, even, is, even uh, so Mark, I'm, I'm, I'm interrupting my, only for time here. Even if what you say is correct, and I don't doubt that it might be, I've, I've not read through, tell her to send me those 120 pages. But even if that is correct, that's only 120 breeders or whatever number you say it is. That's not most of America. So still, dogs are being sold in places, fewer places than ever before, at pet stores. And I'm saying, let's stop that. Now, you have an alternative idea. I'm saying if it works, I'm okay with that. I want I want exemptions. I want exemptions for dogs that come through programs. And right now, the only ones canine care certified, and it's only 120 because it's only been in operation a shorter period of time. But the word gets out, and once once pet owners, those precious millennials, realize, oh, I can get a quality, healthy, humanely bred dog here. My point is, I want exemptions, Steve, from your bands for those dogs. Now, let's go to the next topic, because you and I can fight about that. But that, that's my carve-out. So we're not as far apart as you think. Okay. And I want to continue this conversation. As you know, I respect you. You're an extraordinarily intelligent dude. And what's more, contribute every day to the pet world. We just happen to disagree. And as I tell my listeners, Mr. Cushing, I still say I'm right. But Next, we will talk about something that is, I think, what the future of veterinary medicine needs to be. And we both do agree, I happen to know. And we'll do that next on WGN. Mark Cushing is with the Animal Law Group. In fact, it is your group, isn't it, Mark? Well, it's an animal policy group. Sorry. Animal policy group. We, we, we're not a law firm, but we're, we are focused on regulatory, legal, political, industry issues. So that's it. Animal policy group. And we'll talk about one issue in a second. The name of the book, I want to mention it because it is an amazing read. It, it really will make you think. Agree, disagree, doesn't matter. It will make you think. Uh, it's called Pet Nation, the inside story of how companion animals are transforming our homes, culture, and economy, which is very true. And we also know what is very true is that a record number of companion animals now share our homes with us. That uh, it was escalating every year anyway, but during the pandemic, a good thing. People went crazy and adopted dogs and cats, particularly millennials. And also Gen Zers or Zillennials or Zoomers or whatever you want to call them, adopting as well. The result is we have more pets than children in America, more pets than we've ever had before. But for a variety of reasons, which you'll tell me about now, Veterinary care is harder to come by than ever before. Yeah, it is. And, and it's, it's due simply to two forces intersecting. One, between 1978 and 2014, America opened one new vet school. We now have 185 medical schools in this country and 33 vet schools. And the simple fact is, we, we have now a systemic shortage of veterinarians. We just don't produce enough veterinarians, period. You also have millennials that are the largest cohort of pet owners, uh, followed by Gen Z's and, and, and still boomers, my group. But the point is, millennials want human-scale, human-quality health care for their pets, and they'll pay for it. Yeah. So demand surges. COVID has a group of new millennials that got one or more pets spiking that demand. And we have a chronic shortage of veterinarians. So what's that mean? You, you, you now have common in rural, urban, suburban settings, any part of the country, people calling a vet saying we're, our appointments are three weeks out, six weeks out, eight weeks out. 
and people can't get care. And so then people go to, like people do for their own care, they rush to emergency hospitals and are told, I'm sorry, no room here. In fact, many emergency hospitals close for three or four days a week just to give their staffs break. All true. Now, I'm I'm, I'm interrupting you because I want to make one more point. The other thing that has happened at the same time is people, not only do we have a shortage of people coming into the profession, which includes not only veterinarians, I'm sure you'd agree, technicians as well, but we also have people leaving the profession in record numbers. We did during the pandemic, lots of veterinarians and technicians said, I'm retiring, I've had it. And that's the case for many professions. It isn't only veterinary medicine. And consistently since the pandemic, for a whole variety of reasons we don't have time to talk about, people have left the profession as well. As a result of all of that, you're totally right. And I think so getting appointment can be very, very difficult, even in an emergency room. Much more than that. Yeah, but no question. So I would argue, I would argue, Mark, some care provided by professionals professional veterinarians and technicians is way better than no care. And, and Steve, I so, go 100%, ahead. Yep. Good. 100%, Steve. I, I wrote the first article on veterinary telemedicine in September, 2015. And Tom Bond of NABC and I formed the veterinary innovation council in January of 16 and kicked off the consideration of telemedicine. It has worked for 30 years in human medicine and all 50 states allow it. Yet veterinary medicine looks at it like it's a dangerous, radical idea. But we've made progress in six years, and, and we've made progress. But and here's the thing. If you cannot see a veterinarian, it's a purely theoretical argument that in-clinic care is better than telemedicine. Nobody is debating what's better or not. Uh, we, you need to pr- provide people a tool to get help when they think their pet's in trouble and the idea that you have to earn the privilege of that care by getting into a clinic and only then can you earn it is, is moot if you can't even get into a clinic. And, and you're up north in Chicago, and you're not that far from or Ontario, Canada, where Toronto is. Fifteen million people, a big, big province, just like the U.S., except better manners. <laughs> you know what? For four and a half years, Steve, they've had wide-open telemedicine. Yeah. Not a single... Not a single complaint of any injury to a pet, number one. That should end the argument. The point is you can try to scare people that telemedicine is dangerous. The point is not in the States, not in Ontario, where it's been full force, has there been a complaint. Doctors like it. Clinic visits are up. Telemedicine is a partnership with clinics. It's not a threat to clinics. And you, you made the point at the start. I love this example. Take a a 75-year-old woman in a Chicago apartment, lives on the eighth floor. She has two cats. They're the most important thing in her life. She is never going to a veterinarian. She's never crawling under her bed, pulling the cats out, putting them in a crate, carrying them downstairs, getting a cab or Uber. That's not going to happen. Why is it better that she never get medical care than if she gets it through a live phone or Zoom or real-time or FaceTime encounter? We both know the answer. Of course, professional care is better. And there are right now 15,000 DVMs at home, in this case, uh, women DVMs, which is a majority anyway, who would who could provide that care. They're not going to work in clinics. Why would we not tap that 15,000? You want to see the shortage go down quickly? 
open up the access to telemedicine care. And you live in a state that makes it as tough as any state in the country. It, it, it defies me that Illinois, as progressive as it can be on so many issues, is one of the most conservative states regarding telemedicine. And if and, I could help, and if I could help to change that, Mark, if you have ideas about how to do that, oh, as you know, oh. I, I know people, and I'd be happy to work with you. I'm in absolute, complete agreement with you. The name of his book is Pet Nation, the inside story of how companion animals are transforming our homes, culture, and economy. You know I love talking with you, Mark. It's always a lot of fun, always stimulating conversation, as they say. We've got to do it on stage sometime. You and I keep saying that. That hasn't happened, but it needs to. Let's do it, Steve. Thanks for having me. Good luck. Thank you. Thank you for being had. That's Mark Cushing. Thank you. See you, Steve. So who are the real heroes in veterinary medicine? Veterinarians? Yes, I talk about that in so many ways all the time. I remember toward the beginning of the pandemic, I don't remember the name of the TV special, but it was on NBC, CBS, and ABC. And all these musical performers, I mean, big ones, Paul McCartney, Bruce Springsteen, so many others. And between the music music performers, uh, there were individuals that came out, like George Clooney would come on, and there was a piece, the pre-produced piece that he'd introduced. Well, here's what goes on in the pandemic. Here are the doctors that are treating people, and he'd say that. And then they cut to Laura Bush and Michelle Obama. And they talked about the heroes of the pandemics. And number one, so I think Michelle Obama spoke first, and she said, I want to thank, and they listed together all of these professions that they thanked. Uh, And I believe Michelle uh, Obama said doctors and first responders, uh, and then Laura Bush said veterinarians. And they listed about 20 or 30 other professions. Veterinarians were right up there. And if someone tapped on Laura Bush's shoulder and said, oh, you need to mention technicians too. I'm certain she would have said yes. Uh, The technicians before the pandemic, after the pandemic, during the pandemic, the heroes in my world of veterinary medicine. I mean, nurses are wonderful, but they do so much more than human nurses do even. Uh, They administer anesthesia. They're dental technicians. Like, I mean, they really are an animal version of that. At end of life, They participate with euthanasia. At the very beginning of life, they help you as a pet parent. Here's how to puppy train. Here's what you do to cut your cat's nails. So maybe you don't need to declaw. And I hope they say you don't need to declaw. Uh, There are so many other things. Looking under a microscope and saying, aha, I see that under the mic. And they describe what it is. Maybe a tick disease or some such thing. And then they're the ones who come out to tell you how to use that very tick product. They're the main educators, I think, of veterinary medicine. Certified, registered, and licensed technicians are heroes. They have been, they continue continue to be, and I I don't think pet parents realize the extent of of what they do on a day-to-day basis, and I left out so much. Everything from x-ray technicians to helping veterinarians with uh, administering medications, for example, of hospitalized animals. And someone's got to take out those dogs that are hospitalized on a leash, right, and pick up after the dogs, too, with a plastic bag, or scoop the litter of kittens or cats that are hospitalized. It is the veterinary technician that does all of that and much more. I want to say, anyway, thank you so much to uh, oftentimes under-recognized and always underpaid veterinary technicians. In my view, you guys are. 
the heroes. We'll talk to you next week, bright and early, right here on WGN.